The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm, where our slogan is, We Know Immigration Matters. I am delighted and honored to introduce to you two of my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Chris Trinan and TJ. So today's topic, as you all know, uh, is talking about AC21, the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act. Um, which, as you may have be aware, it's been almost 20 years. It's, uh, it's at this point 19 years. It was enacted back in October of 2000. So we're obviously going to give you an overview of the provisions of AC21 dealing with both the one-year and three-year H-1B extensions of status. We'll talk about the green card provisions of AC21, changing employer, uh, changing employers after the I-485 has been pending for 180 days. And the reason that this is obviously important for you all as employers and companies is if you are going to hire an employee, then you certainly can do that under the terms and conditions of AC21. And uh, the last issue, of course, is where we will explain and go over the uh, regulation to clarify certain terms and provisions became, which became much clearer based on the January 17, 2017 regulations, which were passed on the last day of Obama's presidency and one day before Trump got into office, one business day before, because he started on January 20th and there was a weekend in the middle. So the best part of this is that we are really being able to enjoy this incredibly pro-employer and employee interpretation of AC21 that I don't think would have been possible uh, under the current administration. So with that, if I may have TJ, and by the way, by way, uh, further way of introduction about TJ, mm -hmm. TJ is really knowledge and brilliant, brilliant and uh, knowledgeable all about H-1B and non-immigrant issues. In fact, he's the co-coordinator of that department and very active in, as I said. So I'm going to invite EJ, uh, TJ to give us a brief overview of AC21 as it pertains to H-1B related issues. Sure. Thanks, Sheila. So just the basics of AC21. One of the, one of the, you know, benefits it it increased the it allowed um, the twenty thousand masters cap to not be subject to the regular cap. So it kind of increased the cap numbers. Um, as Sheila alluded to, also um, not increase the numbers. The numbers were the same, just that it would benefit U.S. masters holders marginally or somewhere, right? The masters caps were no longer subject to the regular cap. Yeah. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly, exactly. Um, it also allowed you to extend your H-1B status either one year or, s or three years based on certain stages of the green card process. If you have the labor certification that's been pending uh, for a year or more, you get a one-year extension or an I-140 approved. You can get and a non-current priority date. You can get a three-year extension. Um, it also allowed some petitioners to file as cap-exempt. So in other words, you did not have to go file under the H-1B cap. Um, these were, you know, for an H-1B worker who was working, um, who's been employed or received an offer of employment at an institution of higher education or a related or affiliated nonprofit entity, mm -hmm. a nonprofit resource organization, 
or a government research organization. So we're definitely going to um, you know, discuss all of these even in greater detail in a few minutes. But if a person has been counted against the cap once, if the H-1B worker has already been counted within the past six years or even before that actually, uh, that person will not be again counted under the cap unless the person is requesting another full six years at the time of the H-1B petition is filed, which hopefully is almost n never required or re because we keep getting these questions all the time. Chris, uh, when we were talking about mm -hmm. speaking for the for today's uh, teleconference, in fact, Chris, TJ, and myself said employers and employees are confused about this and assume that if it's after six years, maybe a new H-1B petition is required, but it mm -hmm. is not required if you have the perm pending over one year or the I-140 approval because you are now CAPEC exempt. What about yeah. increased portability provisions, TJ? Yeah, so the, so the um, AC-21 also allowed uh, employees to start working upon the filing of an H-1B petition with the new employer. So instead of waiting for the approval, they could just start working upon the filing. And later on, the regulations clarify some of those issues. Um, it also stated that H-1B petitions that are revoked for fraud, that H-1B cap number is restored to the quota in the fiscal year that it was revoked. Now, I don't know if anyone's seen them ever actually add numbers back to the cap, but you know that's what AC-21 said. And then one of the final main benefits of, of AC-21 was the Conrad waiver. Essentially, you know, doctors that are, came in J status and were subject to a two-year home residency requirement can get a waiver of that requirement if they're working in you know, certain medically underserved areas. Those individuals get their waiver and then they are not subject to the cap. They don't have to wait for April 1st to file their case. They can file immediately. Right. Okay, and it's interesting, this fraud-related issue that you pointed out, because I'm not sure the law, the statute, the black-letter law actually allows them to come up with this interpretation to explain, because I think they've had some pushback from people, including Adam Rosen and some of us at the Murthy Law Firm, saying, hello, you cannot revoke and put this number and now say this person is no longer subject to the H-1B or CAP-exempt based on a prior approval even if it's fraud-related issues. So it's interesting that they've tried to sneak this back into the system, claiming that they will restore it to the quota it was revoked. I don't think there's a mechanism. I don't think there it's ever no, happened. There, there are no provisions there's to do no that. There's no provisions, and I think they're just saying that mm -hmm. to try and respond to creative, smart, bright, knowledgeable lawyers, like at the Murthy Law Firm, who are challenging the government, who's taking away or threatening to take away people's prior H-1B approvals and having been counted in the quota. So the new regulations also clarify long-standing conflicting interpretations of AC-21, and they provide increased benefits, as we know, to H-1B employees, like there's a 10-day grace period before admission into the United States and after the validity period for the E-1, the E-2, the E-3, the H-1Bs, the L-1s, or TN non-immigrants. Though, just to be clear, it's time for people to, like, basically come and settle down, search for an apartment, or when you leave, to pack up, leave, buy your tickets, and go. You cannot work during that 10-day grace period. But what about the 60-day grace period after the termination or cessation of employment, Chris? Yeah, Sheila. One, this is one of the, the best things to come out of these regulations. It used to be if you were an H-1B or L status or O status and you got fired from your job, you were out of status the next day. And you, presumably, you would have to leave the country at that point. You had very few options. Um, 
the rule that comes out of these regulations is that you now have a 60-day grace period from the cessation of employment. And that means, cessation means either you're terminated or you quit. There's no, there's no differentiation made here. Uh, and this applies to most of the non-immigrant statuses, so E1, E2, E3, H1B, H1B1, the treaty, the, the H1B treaty visas, um, L1, O, or TN. It's basically available once during each validity period. What does that mean, once during each validity period? There's some, uh, there's some ambiguity there. I mean, I think the simplest way to explain it is once per each, H1, each non-immigrant approval. You would get it. You would get a brand new. So each time. Period. So if I keep getting fired every six months mm-hmm. because I'm incompetent or the economy is bad or whatever, you're saying every six months I could do that one for that one petition approval that's, per employer. That's where the ambiguity arises here. Maybe it's it's once per approval, but there's also an argument here. Let's say you have a you have an approved an approved H-1B, and you find file a change of employer petition. You go and work for the new employer, and that petition gets denied. Now, do you get a new 60-day grace period when your employment with that new employer ends, even though that petition was denied? And that's that's ambiguous right now. That's an argument we have successfully made on some cases, but it, it's unclear from the regulations, and there are really different ways to look oh, at this. Oh, interesting. So what you're explaining is that if the USCIS denies an H-1B mm-hmm. petition, mm-hmm. we could argue legally mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. since there's been a cessation of employment, Within 60 mm-hmm. days, that you, fall that under you the now fall under the AC21 regulation, and hence, please approve my change or extension with the I-94 card attached. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Does exactly. it work? It works sometimes. It's not the, I, It's not something that's going to work every time, but it's a valid legal argument. I think argument. that's a brilliant, brilliant creative strategic issue that I don't think most companies and employers, and again, thanks to the incredible team at the Multi Law Firm for really flushing it out and looking to see where we can find little gems to help clients, employers, and employees mm-hmm. get additional time. And just to finish that up, Sheila, I'm mm-hmm. this, during the 60 days, it's a true grace period. You're considered still to be in, in non-immigrant status. You can switch to another status, switch to a new employer, or leave the country during that 60 days. Um, it is technically discretionary, which means the government doesn't have to give it to you. But in, in all honesty, I've only seen a handful of instances where the government declined to give a 60-day grace period, and these were fairly unique circumstances. I see. Okay. What about the entire Section 214, Section 214N of the Immigration and Nationality Act? TJ, I'll come to you now. Uh, what does it provide? And sure. So we talked about this a little bit before that you know you can file a change of employer and then start working for that new employer upon the filing. It it kind of makes it so you're not married to one job for the rest of your life. Um, the the final regulation clarified that. Well, just to go back a little bit, you can work for that. You can work for the that employer for as long as that petition is pending. Um, there so there's no 120-day rule. There's no 240-day rule. If it takes two years, you can stay and work for the two years. There's no even after the I-94 card has expired. Uh, you can continue working for as long as that petition remains pending. Because I know just yesterday, I think at the ALA conference, um, they were talking about this 120-day rule, which didn't make sense anymore in view of this language. So I think that was all pre this regulation, I think people are mixing up, including smart, brilliant, knowledgeable, uh, leading immigration law firms and lawyers are quite missing the point here. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and there's also another provision of the law that says if you file an extension with the same employer, you can continue working for 240 days past your I-94 expiration date, so long as that petition remains pending. The, the regulation, however, clarified that if you 
file for new employment, even if it's with the same employer, that that 214N rule still applies. So in other words, if you file new employment is considered an amended petition with the same employer or a change in previously approved employment with the same employer, you can that falls under 214N and you can continue to work as long as that petition is pending. Now once that petition is denied, then that work authorization would cease. Obviously if it's approved, then you just continue working pursuant to the terms and conditions of that approval. Uh, the, the final rule also clarified that in order to use the portability provision, you need to be in H-1B status at the time you file. Now, I believe AC-21 did not say that. AC-21 just said if you previously held H-1B status, you can start working upon the filing. So if you were in H-1, changed to H-4, and then wanted to file a change back to H-1B, it, the, the rule to me was very clear that you could start working upon because that. Because it used the word in the actual AC-21, if you were ever previously I've, on H-1B status or yep. visa. Yep. Um, but the and but in practice, they would never. USCIS was not interpreting it that way. So the final rule made it clear that no, you have to actually be in H-1B status to take advantage of that portability provision. So very very interesting. So just to again reiterate the the importance of that I think many people don't realize is because I'll, I still hear this both from a lot of lawyers and companies, uh, employers and employees, where they say. No, I have to stop working after 240 days or eight months. Mm -hmm. The answer is no, because in many, many cases, when you're doing your next petition, especially if it's a change of work location, change of employment, change in salary, change in job duties, that's an amendment. And if it's an amendment, guess what? You might as well have that case pending for the next two or three or four years. Let them take their own sweet time because they want you to give them extra money. They want you to pay the premium processing and be stupid, which they've again increasing. They're increasing it again in a couple of weeks yeah. um, in November. Yeah, those are cases you may want to consider not filing premium. Just why why file it in premium? Working. Why get a denial earlier so you lose more money and stop working and the employee has to pack up and leave? Save your money and allow the person legally protect the employer and the employee by keeping on working. Next very important issue, mm -hmm. uh, Chris. Bridging. What is the bridging? What does it mean, bridging memo? What's happening mm -hmm. and what's the explain? Well, let's give an example, probably the easiest way to explain this. Let's say you're working with H-1B employer, employer A, and your I-94 expires on January 1st. On December 31st, you file with employer B. Okay, now you can go work for employer B, and that, that period of time after your I-94 expires would be considered what's called a period of authorized day. Not quite the same as having status, but you're still lawfully here. You're still allowed to continue working. So you're working with employer B for a month, and then employer C files for you. Now, you're allowed to go work for employer C, but employer B in that situation will be what we call a bridging petition because you have a one-month gap between the expiration of your I-94 and the filing of employer C's H-1B. So what that essentially means is if the employer B petition is denied or withdrawn, it means the employer C case can no longer be approved with an I-94. It can only be approved normally for, for consular processing. So you're allowed, you're allowed to work for employer C for that time period, but if employer B is ultimate, the employer B H-1B is ultimately denied, you're allowed, you, you, employer C essentially is going to turn into consular processing. You have to leave the country and get a visa stamp and come back to get back into lawful status. Okay. Um, and essentially, that's why we call the, the employer B petition a bridging petition, okay? Now, this only applies in situations where your I-94 has already expired. If, you're, if employer A's 
if the employer A petition still has a, a, an I-94 that's valid, none of this applies. This only applies, strictly speaking, where your I-94 has expired and you've got petitions that were filed after your I-94 has expired. So you're saying there's no violation of status, there's no breach, there's no problem. If in this example that you just gave mm -hmm. us, Chris, the company A petition has remained valid? Correct. And even though the person, the benef employer beneficiary, worked with employer B, C, and D maybe, or mm -hmm. B and C, mm -hmm. then goes back because A has not mm -hmm. revoked the petition. Correct. Goes back and works. Mm -hmm. The regulation makes it crystal clear that you are fine in this case to go back and work and you're not considered out of status and you're, next time you do an extension with ex employer mm -hmm. A, USCIS hopefully won't come, is not allowed under this regulation to come mm -hmm. back and say, whoa, 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 you jumped to B and C mm -hmm. in the interim. We saw that because we denied your petitions. We even saw your pay stubs right. with employer B. Hence, we're going to deny your I-94 card attachment because you're not maintaining valid status? Correct. That's one of the things that, that these regulations make clear, is that you can always go back to employer A if that petition has not expired or been revoked. That was something that was always that was always a bit ambiguous in the past. The regulations have made that clear. You always have the option to go back to employer A if that petition is still there for you. This is amazing. Mm -hmm. So I know every time I, I speak about this, I'm so... Uh, amazed because so many people aren't familiar with it mm -hmm. even though the law itself was mm -hmm. passed all as we said almost 19 over 19 years ago right. and uh, the regulations were passed uh, at this point almost, almost three, three years, years ago so okay next issue that we want to touch upon is uh, what happens when a person or an occupation requires state or some other kind of licensure so as you know certain occupations might require a license however a state could allow or may allow an individual who has no license to fully practice in that occupation under the supervision of a licensed supervisor. The final rule clarifies that if the facts demonstrate that the H-1B worker will fully perform the duties of the occupation under the supervision of a licensed professional, the H-1B petition can and should get approved, or that cannot be the basis for a denial. Again, I think a lot of this was very, very unclear. But in this case, they can only grant maximum, I believe, a one-year approval. Uh, but I think, uh, TJ, TJ, would you like to explain that? Sure. So there are certain occupations where you, know, you can work under the licensed professional. I think maybe an engineer would be a, a good example of that, where you don't have the license. Others, you must have the license. Um, think about doctors. I don't want a doctor working on me who does not have a license. But you run into a problem sometimes where many states require you to have a social security number in order to get a license. Well, how do you get a social security number? You come in the United States to work. So how do you file an H-1B petition showing that you have the license where you can't get the license until the H-1B is approved. The it's chicken and egg problem. Uh, yeah, so, it's, it, so the regulations kind of clarify that, and it allows you to get, in this situation, a one-year approval without the license if you can show, for instance, that the, the lack of getting the license is solely due to you know, the, the lack of the Social Security number. But otherwise, you are fully eligible for the license. So in that situation, they would give you a one-year approval. So then by the time you file your extension, you should have that license available so you can get your full three years at that time. Okay. 
Wonderful. Thank you. It is something that was very tricky, and it's whether it's an en- certain licensed engineers, even lawyers, doctors, many professions require nurses, licensed pr- nurse, etc. So several, several. Next, a very important topic. Again, some of you may think, well, it doesn't ap- apply to me, so I can start to tune out. Please don't, because there's a real clever, again, very clever uh, avenue for you to be able to use as a technology com- company or a uh, another company or employer. This is regarding nonprofit higher education petitioners. And again, you may say, I'm not a university, I'm not a community college, I don't need it. Well, there's a creative legal loophole where your employee could be working there and actually take advantage of being able to work legally. So Chris, will you explain mm-hmm. this crazy concept? Just for a little background here, I mean, that when we talk about the cap, we talk about the 85,000 visa limit per year for H-1Bs. Um, now, that applies to for-profit companies in general, but certain nonprofit entities are exempt from that, which means they don't have to worry about the H-1B lottery, they don't have to worry about filing the first week of April. Essentially, they can file an H-1B anytime they want with any starting date they want. Um, and these regulations basically clarified the rules on this, which were in flux for quite a while. And basically, it says a U.S. nonprofit petitioner uh, seeking exemption from the H-1B cap uh, can qualify that for that based on affiliation with an institution of higher education, which is a, a clarification of, of sort of an, an ambiguous issue for many years. Um, so just to, to give the, the basic law here, um, what the rules say is that you can qualify, if you're a nonprofit institution, you can qualify as cap-exempt from four basic ways. Uh, you can show that you're connected or associated with an institution of higher education through shared ownership or control by the same board of directors or federation. Um, that would be essentially a, a nonprofit that actually has common ownership with the university, which you see from time to time, but it probably is not the no- most common situation. Uh, that you can have, show that you have our nonprofit operated by an institution of higher education. So in other words, a, uh, you're directly, you're a part of a university. So what is straightforward. Uh, or three, that you're attached to an institution of higher education as a member, branch, cooperative, or subsidiary. Uh, essentially kind of an extension of the same idea, that you're, there's a common, ownership, common ownership, common control sort of situation. And fourth, here's the one that's really important. Um, that you are a nonprofit institution that has a formal written affiliation agreement, um, in which to quote this exactly, establishes an active working relationship between the nonprofit entity and the institution of higher education for the purpose of research or education, and a fundamental activity of the nonprofit entity is to directly contribute to the research or education mission of the institution of higher education. So this is a situation where you have a nonprofit entity that has essentially a contractual relationship with a university. Uh, that nonprofit is doing some type of work that's related to the educational or the research objectives of the university. This is really the most common one. Um, this would sort of, to give an example here, this would be the teaching hospital that has an affiliation agreement with a medical school. They might not necessarily be own, be, have common ownership or con- common control, but the teaching hospital agrees to, to help train doctors who, who are from the medical school. So they do have that affiliation. Um, this is important in these regulations because this was, this is sort of, this is the most common arrangement for teaching hospitals. And some years ago, USCS came out with a memo and said, no, we're not going to accept this anymore, which sort of threw everything into, uh, into chaos because this is such a common, a common uh, arrangement. 
Um, and they backtracked on that a few times, and it was, but essentially this was in flux for a number of years. These regulations basically finalize uh, the idea that you can have an affiliation agreement between a nonprofit and the university, and it's still acceptable. You would still be considered cap exempt as long as you have that in place. Wonderful, and I think it might even help, and maybe TJ is gonna give an example in a minute on how you as a technology company, a pure for-profit company, if you then have set up some type of nonprofit or even directly as a technology company, consulting company, you put place somebody, how we could make that work. But just to, again, reaffirm what Chris and TJ and I have just been speaking, this final rule clarifies that the petitioner only needs to meet one mm -hmm. of these four criteria to qualify for the H-1B cap exemption and the exemption from the acquia fee, which is either 750 or $1,500. Mm -hmm. And when you keep looking at the government, the H-1B fees, while somebody may say, oh, who cares, 1500 Well, when you're talking 10, 20, 50, 100 employees, it starts to add up. It adds up very quickly. So, yep. TJ, what's the issue about this whole, like, creative, clever, crafty, legal way that an employer could look to place sure. an employee? So, so if this wasn't already complex... It gets even more complex. We had a nice long discussion about this I'm sure the employers on this phone call are so excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so essentially, if the, the law also allows you to um, file as cap-exempt, even if you aren't one of these nonprofits. What you have to do, though, is you have to, your, your employee needs to be employed at one of these nonprofits. You know, for instance, you have a, a teaching hospital that's affiliated with an institution of higher education. That hospital is cap exempt. Um, but you, as you know, maybe if you're an IT consulting company or something like that, you are permitted to place your employee at that hospital site and potentially it could be a cap exempt case. Now, so the Forget about hospitals. Most of the okay. people on this call are technology consulting companies, yeah, private yeah. employers. Sure. So like a, a, an IT technology consulting company can place their employee at the hospital and potentially be cap exempt depending on whether certain requirements are met, which were kind of formalized in the, the new regulations. So one, that employee needs new to... New, i.e. three-year-old regulations. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> to me, I said, there's still, it's just, there's so much still to be explored, explored in this that it, it just seems new. Mm -hmm. um, so in order to take advantage of this situation, the, the employee needs to spend the majority of his or her time at and perform job duties at that cap-exempt institution. So your IT worker needs to uh, you know, spend most, i.e. more than 50% of his or her time at the hospital. And then this is where it, I would say it gets a little bit more... At the university, at a university, for example. At the university, at a hospital that's affiliated mm -hmm. with the university. Mm -hmm. Any of these will work. If you can mm -hmm. get them at the, the qualifying institution, work there more than 50% of the time, you've met that criteria. Um, you also need to show, this is where it gets a little bit more difficult, that the job duties directly and predominantly further the essential purpose, mission, objectives, or functions of the qualifying organization. So we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Well, but what if I am a technology company? I've got a software engineering degree, mm -hmm. a master of science sure. computer, bachelor's, and now I'm a systems analyst, programmer analyst, whatever, and I am basically sent to work at the university. Mm -hmm. So even if I'm only doing technology consulting because it's to help create their software, it's all predominantly to further their purpose, their mission, their sure. objectives, and that would explain the, the connection. Sure, right? yeah, I mean, you need to establish that connection. I think there's ways you can get creative with this to, to show that connection. 
um, you know, we were talking about an example earlier. If you send someone as a janitor there, it's not going to work because just you're cleaning the floors are not necessarily one. It's not an H1B level job, but two, it's not necessarily as you know further in the purpose. But if you did send an IT worker there and they're working on the IT systems of the of the university, somehow that it furthers the the university's purpose of educating students. You're working on an educational software program that they use or something like that. I that could work. Um, you need to really establish that there's a nexus between the duties and that purpose of that cap-exempt institution. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you, TJ. So, Chris, mm -hmm. what is this issue about concurrently being able to file with a cap-exempt and a cap-subject employer? So if I am a technology company, for example, um, regular you know, business for-profit, regular business, and now I have an employee that's actually working maybe only part-time, let's say, with a cap-exempt employer, mm -hmm. like with the university, mm -hmm. Uh, under this cap-exempt quota that we just talked about, mm -hmm. right? 20%, 30%, 50%, 20 hours a week, or even 10 hours a week. Can they ne then enjoy a free ride and work for the technology, or is there a problem? Well, there's been this has been an exception for many years. Essentially, if you're an H-1B employee who's working in a cap-exempt petition, let's, let's say you're working at a university, you've got a three-year approval with the university, and you're cap-exempt. You've never been counted under the H-1B quota. You've never gone through the through the H-1B lottery. The regulations have always said, essentially, you could get concurrent employment in a job that would not normally be subject to the cap, as long as it's concurrent with your cap-exempt employment. I know this is getting very complicated, but that's always been the rule. Um, these regulations narrow this a little bit because it used to be if you're in your cap-exempt job, you file another H-1B for concurrent employment with a for-profit company, used to be you could get a, a normal three-year approval. What these regulations say now is you cannot get an approval on that concurrent H-1B that's longer than your cap-exempt H-1B. So, so if you have three years remaining, great. But if you have only six months remaining, you'll only get the approval. You're going to get a six-month approval. six months. And it also says, which is a, a major change, if the cap-exempt employment ends, so let's say you're working for a university and you quit that job, then the cap subject petition that you got concurrently will be revoked. I have yet to see that happen, but that's what the regulations But that would only be say. if someone notifies them. What yep. if you've just been terminated or you quit? Correct. I mean, they obviously this would be a situation where the government is no. aware of that. Now, technically, H-1B employers are supposed to notify the government when you're, when you're terminated, but of course that's not, always, that's not always what happens in the real world. Wonderful. Thank you. So now I know most of us are aware of the recapture rule, TJ. But there's a little wrinkle or nuance in this regulation that clarifies an issue about being out for a certain number of hours each day. Sure, sure. So essentially, as you probably know, you get six years in H-1B status, subject to certain exceptions we'll go over in a little bit. However, time that you're not in the United States doesn't count towards that six years. So I take a, a three-month-long trip outside of the country. I can then get that recapture, that time back, and add it to the six years. The, the rule clarified that any time, it must be more than 24 hours outside the United States. So if you took a, you know, a day trip to Canada, you don't get that full day as outside the United States. You just, it's like you never left. You can't recapture that one day. So a person who works, commutes between Canada and U.S., a lot of people who live on the Detroit on the bridge, mm -hmm. if they go and work like nine or ten, eight or nine hours every day and come back nine to five, do we know what the USCIS is doing? I believe there's also a uh, commuter rule, a commuter rule for for H one Bs where they're not subject to the, the six year. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So those, but if you're just, you know, you live near the border, you want to go up to Canada to, you know, to, to shop every other weekend, you can't then get that time back. Got it. Okay, yeah. so it's as if you're still here because it's too short if it's less than 20, 12 hours within a 24-hour period mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's why when we do recapture, we don't count the day you left and the day you come back. So there's two days you don't get because you weren't out for more than 24 hours. I um, see. So it's yeah. only if you exceed 24 hours that you start to exactly, get it. Exactly. Okay, and what is the other issue that this rule clarifies? So we, we touched on this briefly before where the, the rule clarified that you could have held H-1B status or been counted against the cap more than six years ago and still be cap exempt. So for instance, 2002, you filed against the cap, you came in, you worked for a year, you left. You didn't come back You don't until years. 2000, yeah, 2012, you want to come back. There is some ambiguity. Do I need to go under the cap again? Or can I just kind of reuse that the remaining portion of that five years that I have left? The final rule makes clear that yes, you can use that final portion of your of your six years. You would have five years left. You're kind of recapturing that ten years that you are outside the United States. Wonderful. I'm sure that's always exciting. I'm still fun. again when I do consultations, even now in 2019, I get people saying, "Really, really? That's not what my company lawyer told me, or what have you." Uh, what about lengthy adjudication delays? So basically, um, as you know, as we touched upon it briefly, if the employer, you as an employer, had filed a labor certification at least 365 days earlier, uh, or the I-140, then uh, and the, or the I-140 in a case which does not require a labor like EB-1 and IW, etc., then the employee is eligible for the one-year H-1B extensions under Section 106A of the AC-21 law until a final decision has been made to either deny or revoke the labor certification or deny or revoke the I-140 petition or deny or approve the 485 or immigrant visa or administratively close the, uh, the labor certification, the I-140 or the 485. So what does this really mean, TJ? Because the rule is the rule is the rule. <laughs> But now you're like, what does this really mean for me or for my employees if sure. I'm a company? Sure, there's always wiggle room in there too, right? So you think, oh, my, you know, my I-140 has been denied or my labor cert has been denied. I'm out of luck. I can't, I can't get my one-year extension based on this. However, it's, it, it clarifies that it's not until a final decision is made. So if you're within the time period where you can appeal or if you have appealed, then it's kind of like, that you know, labor cert or I-140 is still alive for extension purposes. And so strategically, we tell a lot of people mm -hmm. who obviously haven't filed, you know, who get a denial of the perm or I-140, and they're like, oh my God, now I have to pack up and leave. I'm pretty much out of luck. We say, no, just go ahead and do an appeal while your employer is preparing a new perm case to comply and do it properly this time. Follow all the rules, make sure you comply and hopefully get the next perm or I-140 approval. But as long as that appeal is pending, you can now keep on filing and renewing your H-1B in one year extensions uh, based on having filed the labor or I-140 over 365 days earlier. Even though you know that there's a very, very high chance that that previously filed case for which you're filing an appeal will most likely get denied, but you're doing it to buy yourself an additional time so the employer can prepare the ads, so you as an employer can prepare the ads and keep everything ready to file because you don't want to lose this valuable employee. Sure, and, and the process time for some of these labor sort appeals can be years, so you can use that appeal for multiple H-1B filings. Okay, what and about advanced? Sure, so the, the final rule also clarified, I've still seen this come up as an issue, but that you can file for your one-year extension 
even if your labor cert or I-140 or whatever it happens to be has not actually been pending for one year at the time you file. What you do need to show is that that labor cert will have been pending by the time your six years ends. So let's say, for instance, you know you filed your, your labor cert in January of, of 2019. Your six years in H-1B status uh, you know, expires in February of 2020, but we're here in February 2019. You can still file and get a one-year extension on top of that February 2020 date because by the time your six years will have expired, the labor certification will have been pending for more than 365 days. Because they're going to give the approval from that date onward. So now we're exactly. in November of 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so at this point you're saying, if the, even if it expires after so many more months, be, even though it's not 365 days, if 365 days is reached on the time, by the time that you request that starting date, let's say in TJ's example from f- next February of 2020 for three years till 2023, you can file it now, even if you haven't co- reached the 365 days. Sure, yeah. So the, the main thing to keep track of is when and does your six years... you can include recapture year, time, too. You can, you can include recapture time and, and think about when does your six years end. And if the six years will end, by that time, if my labor certification will have been pending for 365 days, you're eligible for that extension. Okay. And when you do the recapture time, again, you can file it this in bef- earlier with the future start date mm-hmm. showing mm-hmm. all this recapture time. Yep. Mm-hmm. And what mm-hmm. about the immigrant visa? So one, one thing that, that is a little bit you know, new in this role, and this is not a good thing with this role, one of the, the few things, is that essentially to get your one-year extension, you, know, you need all this pending for a year, but there's also an exception. If you, you know, let's say you have your labor cert filed in 2002, your I-140 has been approved, you never filed your 45, and your priority date is current, then you're not necessarily eligible for this extension if you didn't apply for your 485 within a year of your priority date becoming current. So what, what it does is- Either it, you're applying for an immigrant visa- Or either consular whether yeah. For consular mm-hmm, processing mm-hmm. or filing the adjustment within one year of the date becoming current because you thought, I don't need it, I don't care. You're saying that I-140, even though that priority date can be ported to any future job or employer, they're not gonna allow you to get an H-1 extension based mm-hmm. on it. So you would have to wait abroad if you have a 10-year gap or anything more than a one-year gap, be abroad and enter as an immigrant. Or if you can come in on a fresh new, maybe cap subject H-1, then you can file your adjustment of status if the priority date is current. Yep, and you can, if your priority date retrogresses, and then, then you would be eligible to file again, and you have a year to file your, your H-1 because you still have Well, then a, a lot year. of Indian nationals have a lot of luck because their dates go forward, dates backward, go forward, forward yeah. backwards. Yeah, that's why we don't see it very often. And USCIS can excuse the failure to file if it's due to circumstances beyond the control of the H-1B worker. Okay. Okay, and what about if there's an approval, if the worker has an approved I-140 and non-current priority date? Did you... So you're, you're eligible to get a three-year extension in, in those circumstances. So it's, it's much more beneficial. You got the approved I-140, but your priority date is not current. You can then request a full three years as, instead of just one. Um, the, the final rule clarified that the H-1B worker does not need to be in H-1B status at the time. So you could be in H-4 status, have your I-140 approved because you were in the past, you were in H-1 status, and still get three years. Um, and I get this question a lot. The I-140 does not need to be with the same employer. 
It can be with your employer nine years ago, 15 years ago. Um, and What if the H-1 is revoked? If the, the I-140, H1, I mean the I-140. If the I-140 was revoked, but it had been approved for 180 days, then you could still use that as well for the rest of your life. Um, unless I believe it, it's in the future revoked for fraud or misrepresentation, then it wouldn't be, you couldn't use that for an extension. But as long as it was approved for at least six months, 180 days, before it was revoked or withdrawn, you can use that for the rest of your life to get your, your three-year extensions. And a lot of times employers will revoke or withdraw it just because they feel like, because they say, I don't want to be financially liable in the future or whatever. You're, you're saying it doesn't make a difference even if the I-140 has been revoked or withdrawn sure, by the it, employer. They can still, the person can still get it, even though a lot of, again, employers, attorneys, companies are confused about this issue. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly. And, and one thing it made clear, and I don't know if this was ever a thing, I know people tried it at, at points, where I personally don't have an approved I-140, but my spouse does. Well, I'm going to use that to get my three-year extension. I think the final rule clarified that that doesn't work, and I've heard of people trying that before in the past. I don't know how successful it, it ever was, but the final rule makes clear you can't do this. It did actually used to work. Again. Did it really work? No. <laughs> it has worked. Not I available anymore, but yeah. it did used to. It did work. Hmm. So you can see how we are always creative and trying to be as aggressive and proactive for our clients at the Murthy Law Firm. So next, let's talk briefly about the basis of the AC21 green card case. An I-140 petition has been approved. There's also a rule about approvable when filed. We know it's a little more risky for an individual whose I, I adjustment of status or 485 has been filed and has remained pending for over 180 days. The law obviously says that that the green card, the 485, can continue, shall remain valid, even with respect to a fresh new job, new employer, either with the same employer, but it's a fresh new job, different job, or with a brand new employer, if the new job duties or the new job is in the same or similar job occupational classification. So let me have you, Chris, explain mm -hmm. what this really means. Well, this clarifies a, a, a series of USCIS memos that have come out over the years. Um, and sort of defining defining phrase here is sam, same or similar job classification. Essentially, and not to go into too much detail in this, in this context, essentially what you would do if you're trying to port to a new job under, under the AC21 provisions is essentially you compare both job descriptions. And if they would both come out to be in the same SOC code, which is the, the code that, you, that the Department of Labor uses to classify different types of jobs, it's presumed that they're the same or similar. So if, if job A, the job that was originally filed for you, comes out as uh, classified as a computer systems analyst, and the new job also comes out classified as a computer systems analyst, then you're fine. Those are the same or similar. Now, that's not the whole story. You could have jobs that don't come back as, as necessarily having the same SOC code, and they could still be considered same or similar. Um, so there is some flexibility here to, to allow an adjudicator to, to, to make this determination. But that's sort of the overriding standard. You, you essentially have to be doing roughly the same duties, to put it sort of in layman's terms. Um, and it also there are also provisions here for what's referred to as career progression, so let's say your, your original job was, we'll use computer systems analyst again. So it was a technical position as a computer systems analyst, and now you're offered a job as, in a, it's a, that's a managerial role, but you're managing people who are computer systems analyst. Um, and what, what the regulations essentially say is normally that's going to be okay too. 
essentially if you're moving to a more senior position where you're managing people who were doing the job that you were previously. Okay. It's also going to normally be okay. Okay. What about AC21? I know Supplement mm -hmm. J should mm -hmm. be notified, not notified. We were actually having a lively discussion we about were. this because Chris mm -hmm. was like, I don't know that I want to stick my finger and tell the government more than I need to. And this is something that we might, as as even attorneys within the same firm, we might not have the same opinion on, in all honesty. Um, there's been a debate as as long as the AC21 rule has been out onto, as to what do you need to do when you take advantage of this? So you're on, you're working on your, your green card job, you move to another position, do you need to notify the government? And it's gone back and forth for the years. Um, now, as of 2017, there's this new form called an I-45 Supplement J that has to be filed with new 45 applications. And it's basically confirming that the job that was that is listed on the I-140 is still available to you. And it has to be signed by the employer and the employee and by their attorneys if, if there are attorneys involved. And asks for basic information about the job, the, the title, the duties, um, how the SOC code, um, information about the company, their their employer ID number, their gross income, how long they've been around, number of employees. So sort of basic employee employer information. Um, and as I said, this has to be filed with all new applications. Now, if you have a pending I-45 and you're, you move to a new employer, you have the option to file this form affirmatively. You can send it into USCIS, you'll get a receipt back, and three or four months, you'll essentially get a decision saying, yes, we accept the portability, the, this portability request, or no, we don't. Now, in practice, when they don't accept the portability request, they tend to deny the, the entire I-45 application, which is not, not a good outcome. Um, so that's kind of where this debate arises. You're still not required to do this if you move to a new job. It's really optional. Um, and it comes down to your risk tolerance. Um, some people would say that the more cautious thing to do if you move to a new job under AC21 would be to send in the 45 supplement J affirmatively just to notify the government that you've, you've moved to a new job. So you don't have them come back later and say, hey, you moved to a new job and you never told us, um, even though you're not really required to. Now, the other option is just to wait for USCIS to ask for it. Um, you might very well get an, a request for evidence or a notice of intent to deny in certain circumstances saying send, send a new supplement J. And that's, I mean, in some, if a case has been pending a long time, that's, that's pretty common. And at that point, you have the option of notifying the government at that point that you move to a new job. And that's fine, too. I mean, you can even, I mean, I've even been in circumstances where I've gone to an interview and I've just brought the supplement J with me and handed it to the officer right there. And, and that's fine, too. I mean, I've never had someone who had an issue with that. So it really kind of, it's a judgment call here. And there are, frankly, different opinions on whether you should do this or not or whether you should, whether, whether you should just wait for the government to ask for it. Okay. So I know we're getting a little tight on time. We always try mm -hmm. to be between 30 and 45 minutes. Um, so if there's two issues, one is the retention of the priority date, that absent fraud or misrepresentation or they said material error, they, it was regular error, and then they changed it to material error based on feedback that the individual is allowed to retain the earlier priority date. Um, so, I mean, that's the good news. But if the I-140 has been revoked, uh, not for fraud or misrepresentation or material error, after 180 days, even though it's not valid for a job offer to file the 485, but it is eligible, the individual can actually use that I-140 mm -hmm. 
previously approved and revoked, which is a great good news uh, for future H-1B extensions and H-4 and H-4 EAD until Lord knows when the current administration will actually remove that, though they've said it might be in the spring of 2020 that they're going to issue some type of regulations. Um, again, there's... Uh, Let's jump. What's the I-140 compelling circumstances, EAD, Chris? Well, this is something that might be available to some people. If you've got an approved I-140 petition that is not current and you are in a in non-immigrant e, E3, H, O, or L status, and for some reason you cannot continue your non-immigrant status, you can apply to the, to the USCIS to get an unrestricted employment card if you can show what are called compelling circumstances. We used to get, I've seen approvals at the Murthy Law Firm when the law first was passed, but now, even if the child is dying and the person was terminated, it's almost like, even if the, and mm -hmm. the world is coming to an end, we don't think it's compelling circumstances, the fact that we, you can't feed your family. We got quite a few initially. Yeah, yeah. So we, we, we got quite a few initially. initially. And then they started suddenly tightening yeah. up. What about the automatic EAD extension? Sure, so this is just an, another benefit of the, the regulations that if you timely file your extension for an EAD based on your 485, you can work for 180 days while that application remains pending. And it's only for 485s, not for H4 EADs. Uh, yeah, yeah. so it's, it's a matter of frustration that we see with lots of our clients that the H4 EAD remains pending. And if your current EAD is expired, you don't have that work authorization. Wonderful. I know we could continue, but again, I want to be very mindful of the time. On behalf of Chris Drynan, TJ, Myself, Sheila Muthi, and the entire Muthi Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us in today's detailed analysis and discussion of legal issues under the AC21 law and regulations. Uh, we certainly look forward to continuing to help you and your company and your employees with all of your immigration-related issues. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving with family, and we look forward to continuing to help you. Have a good afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.